Hi, and welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And we are working our way through Faith Has Its Reasons. And uh, this is kind of a, a look at uh, four particular approaches to Christian apologetics. And we're working on the evidentialist approach. We finished the classical approach last time. And so uh, we're looking at the specific presentation of the evidentialist approach, presenting evidence that demands a verdict is the name of this chapter, okay. which is chapter 10. And we've looked at how they deal with scripture, right? Because much of their evidence comes as a result of considering scripture. And then uh, secondly, uh, the second section of this chapter deals with their um, arguments for the existence of God and how they get to that. And now our authors take us to look at uh, the problem of evil, and they label this section the inductive problem of evil. And so they tell us that, as we saw in part two, classical apologetics have responded at great length to the problem of evil. As traditionally defined, this is a logical or deductive problem that presents a seemingly contradiction in theistic view, right? Specifically, the deductive problem of evil asks whether it is logically possible for an all-good, all-powerful God to exist simultaneously with the world he created, and yet it has evil in it, right? In other words, if he's all-good, then he wants uh, evil, uh, he, he wants all, all good to happen. If he's all-powerful, he's able to get what he wants, which is all good. So the question is, then why does evil exist, right? Right. And so that's the logical or deductive problem of evil. Mm -hmm. And so th that's where the classicalists would tend to um, root themselves in. Uh, but the evidentialists uh, tend to take a different ray. So right. while many, many modern skeptics continue to cite it in this deductive form, some non-theistic philosophers acknowledge that the problem of evil fails to prove a logical consistency in the theistic worldview. As classical apologists and philosophers have pointed out, an all-good and all-powerful God might choose to create a world in which evil would arise if God had some good re reason for doing it. Of course, uh, we're going to cite Scott Christensen's What About Evil uh, for more on that uh, that we covered uh, in whole. And then you can uh, uh, look at the uh, any portion of, of that book that we covered. All right. And so our authors tell us about non-theistic philosophers have not been entirely satisfied with this particular defense, right? That it, the idea here that, well, God might have a good reason for having evil, right? Well, you know, they argue that uh, a much more difficult version of the problem evil still remains to be addressed. Uh, granted, at least for the sake of argument, that it is possible that God created a world where evil exists. How likely is it uh, that... Um, how likely is this to be, in fact, the case, right? So the issue here is not just that evil exists, but how likely is it that evil should exist and how much evil? Look at how much evil exists, right? So Douglas um, Giverett explains that the, uh, the objection has the following form. God must have a morally sufficient reason for allowing any evil uh, that he allows, but there is much evil in the world for which we can imagine no morally sufficient reason, such that it is highly unlikely that God uh, exists, right? There's right. so much evil and we can't imagine the reason for it. And so it's highly unlikely that, uh, that uh, you know, the type of God who is all good and all powerful exists. That's the basic idea here. Right. I'm sure old Doug has a, uh, a, a, 
good uh, good definition for evil that uh, comports with his worldview, and so I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that's there. Yeah. Except, so, uh, yeah. So this this Christian philosopher has has actually done some work in in this particular area, and so he and, and so we'll see here that he he attempts to answer this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Well, his his own response to the evidential uh, problem of evil is based on the positive evidence of, for God's existence. If significant evidence can be presented to show that is highly likely that God exists then the burden of proof is on the person who would argue that God's existence is unlikely. Moreover, if on the basis of the evidence that we conclude that God probably does exist, then given that God is good and all powerful, we may conclude then that God is justified in permitting evil, even if we don't know what his reason or reasons may be. And so that's kind of his approach to trying to get around this particular evil, uh, this problem of evil. Another evidentialist, our book tells us, who analyzes the problem of evil along inductive lines is John Hare. He notes that while any form of the problem of evil is insufficient as a deductive proof of God's non-existence, a more defensible version of the argument reasons that the amount of evil we experience makes the existence of an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent God unlikely. And so after he surveys recent you know, attempts to deal with this uh, evidential problem of evil and deeming them all inadequate, Hare suggests that the only viable solution may be what he calls a disjunctive explanation, right? So in the di- a disjunct is kind of a uh, this or this or this or this or this kind of thing, right? So the explanation will have the following form. X, that is evil, is to be explained by either A, B, C, or some other factor. In other words, uh, there is no one explanation for each instance of evil. Bad things happen for a variety of reasons. And so to develop and refine a person's faith, perhaps, and character, uh, to bring about a revelation of God's glory, to experience suffering vicariously in someone else's place, to punish people for their own acts of evil, to alert people to physical dangers, biologically useful pain, that sort of thing, to learn the consequences of, of evil, or to alert people to, to their need for salvation. So there's more than just one explanation of evil is what uh, here is suggesting here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 people who get addicted to drugs say, uh, I needed to hit rock bottom in order for me to realize the the, the danger I was in. Once I hit it, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I overdosed or I'm glad that um, um, my kids saw me the, the, the way that I saw them look at me. And so uh, that's what caused me to turn my life around. And so um, it doesn't only have to be that one thing. It could be all right, well, you know, uh, you, you want to live without me? All right, here you go. And so uh, that's part of what Romans 1 says. All right, you want to live uh, uh, wholly apart from me? I'm going to turn you over to it, and you're going to experience even more of what exactly you want. And so um, that, that, yeah, that, somebody said the worst thing God can do is give us what we want. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, miracles is evidence for God. And here, uh, I think the evidentialist camp is, is um, probably most known for this or, or, or focused on this. Or we, we, I think everyone likes the idea of miracles, even the unbeliever, because 
uh, they're they're so unique and different uh, the, for the definition of miracles. And so evidentialists believe that miracles, like fulfilled prophecy, can be used in the verification of the supernatural, whereas classical apologists tend to argue that one must first establish the existence for God in order to render miracles credible. Evidentialists argue that miracles can actually serve as evidence for the existence of God. There's a weird thing that happens. This this uh, this apple is floating in, in uh, midair. That seems to be something supernatural. We, we you know, there's no string. There's no magician. It's just <laughs> happening. So, uh, you know, what what do we do with this? Something super. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Whatever you do. <laughs> you know, stay away from fruit. That, that, that's that's all I know. All I know. So uh, they uh, so they use Francis uh, Beckwith as their uh, example here, and he defines the term miracle uh, inductively or empirically rather than deductively. Mm. So for Beckwith, he says that a miracle is a divine intervention which occurs contrary to the regular course of nature within a significant historical religious context. So that's really interesting here. So notice a miracle is scientifically inexplicable religiously significant and supernaturally or divinely caused, right? So those are the three aspects mm. that Beckwith uses in other in, in order to help him define what a miracle is. Right. Right. And and you can be a person that focuses on only one of those aspects as being uh, interesting or wanting to focus on uh, and someone else might find uh, the, the religious significance or, or, or the, the um, source or uh, uh, the, the inexplicability of science to explain it um, as, as, as being a focus. And so that, that's the interesting portion of the, uh, the kind of this inductive uh, approach is that um, uh, the, the kind of the message of the miracle uh, can hit uh, different people in, in a different way. Well, regarding the first mentioned requirement, Beckwith denies that a miracle must be defined as an event that can be known to be permanently uh, inexplicable scientifically. He contends that a miracle is inexplicable in terms of what we know about currently well-established scientific laws. Beckwith also points out that the science's uh, problem-solving uh, capacity has been completely impotent in making any of the primary law-violating miracles of the Christian tradition scientifically explicable. That is, uh, the resurrection, changing water into wine, walking through walls, uh, levitating, multiplying fishes and loaves, uh, instantaneous healing of leopards, and walking on water. There's no, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus had a, a, a very long mirror that he walked on in, in the water, and you just couldn't see it. And so that, that's that's how we know he did his little parlor trick. No, there's no scientific one other than just dismissing all of it. That That's uh, where science comes in. Right. Uh, Beckwith's second condition for an event to be regarded as a miracle is that it has a historical religious significance, right? Miracles are not just purposeless and bizarre scientific oddities, <laughs> but they occur in such a way that the purpose is attached to them by virtue of when and why they occur. And so if an event is scientifically inexplicable and has historical religious significance, then Beckwith concludes that uh, we are just fine in concluding that the event was supernaturally caused. So, sorry, babies, you are you are regulated uh, against being a miracle. So, <laughs> yep. well, then Hume has uh, enunciated the evidentialist principle that a wise man uh, proportions his belief to the evidence. But Beckwith concludes that Hume did not live by this principle because he confused evidence with probability. 
he failed to realize, uh, this is Beckwith, he failed to realize that the wise and intelligent person bases his or her convictions on evidence, not on human probability. That is, an event's occurrence may be improbable in terms of past experience and observation, but current observation testimony may lead one to believe that the evidence for the event is good. Well, you know, I didn't see uh, anything weird up until this day. All of a sudden, I saw a spaceship floating in the, eye, in the sky. Well, I didn't see a spaceship uh, 365 days before. I saw it on this one. I, sh I should dismiss this one as an oddity. <laughs> no, the, the spaceship coming out of the sky is, is, a, is, a, is a big key factor for, for, for me at, at the time of this writing. Right, right. Uh, what about Hume's argument that miracle stories of different religions cancel out one another? <clears throat> Well, Beckwith, Beckwith uh, replies that some miracle stories are of more profound significance than others, and that the most impressive and significant kind of miracle is resurrection from the dead, right? <laughs> and so after he deals with these various human human types of arguments here, uh, only after, after at this point does Beckwith then discuss God's existence. So notice he believes a miracle can be identified as such without first establishing God's existence. Still, he recognizes that providing a good reason to believe in a God capable of doing miracles makes it more probable and plausible uh, to believe in that uh, particular event is indeed a miracle. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we see here a telling, even defining, differences between the evidentialist and the classical apologist. The evidentialist is not closed to using theistic arguments to make belief in God more plausible or acceptable. Unlike the classical apologist, though, he does not think such arguments are necessary. According to the evidentialism, uh, the historical evidence for God's intervention in space and time is sufficient of itself to establish God's existence. So that's where they're uh, uh, planting their flag here. Yeah. All right. So that's uh, miracles. Uh, then there is Jesus, right? The evidence, right? And <laughs> the so evidence. Uh, yeah, this is the next section in their in their in this particular chapter. And they tell us that although some evidentialists focus their apologetic on the scientific uh, evidence for creation, right? Uh, by far the majority concentrate on defending the claims of Jesus Christ and the overwhelming focus of these defenses pertains to belief in his resurrection from the dead. And so the two leading apologists writing on the resurrection in the past 20 years, they suggest, are uh, Gary Habermas and William Lane Craig. And so although Craig is, as we saw in the previous chapter, a classical apologist, his position in many ways is comparable with uh, evidentialism. And in fact, Habermas and Craig use very similar strategies in arguing for the reasonableness of believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, last year I read uh, uh, just a little simple 81-page book by William Lane Craig on um, uh, the evidences for the resurrection using um, uh, uh, sources from, uh, or uh, Evidences from the Bible, the, the things like uh, the, the women being the first witnesses, uh, the fact that uh, Jesus' brothers end up uh, becoming b believers, um, uh, that the church went forth uh, from from a dead man. Uh, it doesn't really make much sense. Um, so uh, all these things. And it was a great little book that I think I've uh, uh, referenced uh, uh, the review on uh, elsewhere. 
All right, well, uh, Habermas and Craig had, have developed a set of core facts, and I think uh, they, uh, Habermas has uh, termed the, uh, coined the term uh, minimal facts approach. So if you could just give me these minimum bases for, for the, these facts uh, that they're rarely denied, and most modern biblical scholars or historian writing on the subject say that there's good evidence for this, well, then I can make the case that Jesus rose from the dead. So here are right. the... So, so, so the idea here is Habermas is saying, look, let's find facts that uh, all of the, most of the modern biblical scholars and historians, historians can agree upon, mm -hmm. that do agree upon. So we'll take these facts that everybody will say agrees upon, and based on these facts, then we'll, we'll argue for the resurrection. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So uh, he gives eight here. Uh, Jesus was publicly executed and died on a Roman cross. Second is that Jesus was buried in a tomb. Then Jesus' tomb was discovered empty the Sunday after his burial. Jesus' followers had no basis for hoping that he would be raised from the dead. Fifth, women friends of Jesus had experiences of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And uh, then uh, Jesus' apostles had experience of seizing, seeing Jesus alive from the dead. Seven, the first Christians proclaimed Jerusalem just weeks after Jesus' death that he had literally risen from the dead. And the final one, eight, uh, is that Paul, a persecutor of the Christians, converted to faith in Christ after an experience of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. So given those eight facts, he can make the case that it is more probable than not that Jesus rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, we should look at his claims for why he did so. Uh, one of them being, mm, I'm God, and then maybe we should believe him. So it lends to the, the evidence of these eight facts. Given these eight facts, it's more likely than not that Jesus rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, it's more likely than not that Jesus is God. And then therefore, God exists, and we're, we're all happy at that point. <laughs> Second, uh, Habermas and Craig uh, refute objections to each of these uh, generally recognized facts and offer additional support for each of these planks of the argument. So in practice, the two facts that are most often uh, disputed are the empty tomb and the first appearances of Jesus. And so those are the ones that they focus in on, right? The, the credibility of the empty tomb is defended by several considerations. Paul's reference to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as part of the received tradition of the church in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. And so what they argue here is that this is an early, I think, uh, psalm uh, or song of right. the church, right? Yeah. And yeah, that's one found the in 1 yeah. Corinthians. Yeah, First uh, Corinthians um five, uh, in particular, three through five. And so this is very, very early. First uh, Corinthians is an early letter of Paul. This is very early then in terms of the, uh, you know, the writings that we have with regard to Christianity. Right. And, and, and the writings uh, are, are early, but the psalm, the, the, the creed sung has to be embedded into the culture of that church has to be known by Paul, and so it's it's making it even earlier than uh, what we date First Corinthians. So it's even earlier because it has to be in the in the the normal uh, goings on of this church that Paul is is referencing. So it's even earlier than than where we put the marker on on the writing. Right, and then secondly, the burial account in Mark, which itself is likely pre-Markian, uh, it shows that the empty tomb was a part of the earliest church's understanding. It's our Q friend. He's 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 helped us out. He's, he's <laughs> yeah. shown the empty tomb. Thanks, Q. Appreciate you. 
<laughs> well, the report of all four Gospels is that the women disciples of Jesus were the first to discover the empty tomb must be historical since chauvinistic men of the time were not likely to have uh, invented such a detail. You, you'd want to put uh, at least uh, uh, Peter and probably John, the inner sanctum uh, first. Uh, you, you might have uh, 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 Rome, uh, 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 Nicodemus uh, stumble upon the empty tomb first, but definitely not women. Uh, right. Definitely not women who, who weren't who were going to the tomb to uh, to to put aloe on the body of Jesus. Uh, you know, the pe people that aren't running, going, oh, he's risen, he's risen. No, they're going somberly and and uh, w with the expectation that there's going to be a body for them. And uh, the, the only thing that they have is, well, who's going to roll this giant stone away from? From the the tomb is is uh, where they where they get in, into the into their mind there. Well, the fact that Jesus' tomb was not uh, venerated as a shrine shows again that the earliest Christians believed that the tomb was empty. Um, you know, we, we we can go to the spot where where uh, our father David is buried, but let's go to the tomb of Jesus. It's it's not there. There there's nothing to go to. Um, maybe Joseph Arimathea, maybe he got it back. Maybe he was able to be buried in it after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, the report of in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, that the earliest Jewish explanations of for the resurrection story was that the disciples had stolen the body proves that Jesus had, in fact, been buried and the tomb was, in fact, empty. So why would the story proliferate if there was still a body? The, the, the Jewish leaders, the Romans could go, no, he, he's right here. We have a guard That's standing right. right here, still right here. There's there's no stealing it. <laughs> yeah. This is so, even if one is skeptical about Matthew's claim that the tomb had been guarded to prevent the body from being stolen, since no one would make up such a story if the tomb had not become empty. Because again, you could just take it back and go here. You know, why does it happen so soon after the resurrection, some 40 days after, you have all these people in the streets uh, uh, converting thousands and thousands of people in a in a culture in a context that sh shouldn't be happening and and uh, doing more so than uh, even Jesus did at the time and holding on to these converts that actually Jesus prophesied would uh, actually happen as well. Hmm. Yeah, in fact, the resurrection appearances also are shown to be authentic history for similar reasons. Again, the accounts of the appearances, especially in First Corinthians fifteen six to eight, are too early, uh, these folks tell us, to have uh, arisen as myths or legends. We have Paul's then, secondly, Paul's firsthand testimony that he saw Jesus alive. And then the gospel testimony that the first persons to see Jesus alive, again, were women and as uh, self-evidently reliable because of the you know, the, the issues that you brought up. And so all of these considerations then are brought together by evidentialists to constitute a cumulative case showing that the resurrection is the most probable, reasonable explanation of the facts. Yeah, and I um, I used a lot of these uh, in my presentation to uh, a group of uh, high schoolers uh, at my church. Uh, I'll link that uh, below because I used it as a, as an episode for us. I, even your humble presuppositionalist, used these terrible, awful evidentialist <laughs> claims and and made the case for the resurrection appearance, which of course presuppositionalists can do uh, as well. And um, of course, I uh, appreciate the work of Habermas and, and Craig and, and all these people. And it might be, make me a heretic from from presup you, but, uh, but uh, oh well. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, third uh, alternate uh, naturalistic explanations are examined and shown to be less plausible of factually based uh, than the resurrection. Fourth, the positive arguments for these facts to the conclusion of the resurrection of Jesus is presented. It is argued that the best explanation of the facts is that, well, guess what? Jesus did actually rise from the dead. That if you if you took all the facts, if you churned them up, if you present them for a jury, the jury would most likely find that uh, uh, Jesus actually did rise from the dead using uh, these set of facts. And lastly, Craig and Habermas argued that the resurrection of Jesus in the context of his life and teaching verifies his claim to deity. It would be different if you know uh, Jesus uh, uh, had a had a cold, had a cough, he he laid down, and then he died. And then three days he woke back up and went, wow, that, that was really weird. But yeah. when you, you're like, hey, in three days, I'm going to destroy this temple and raise it up again. And, uh, you know, say, uh, I've got to depart from you. Uh, uh, I can't uh, stay with you long. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the the job of the Son of Man to uh, die and, and uh, for his people. And the, the fact that all these things are, are being said over and over again and, and not known by the disciples, again, an argument from embarrassment, um, <laughs> show the, the, the cumulative case here that, well, there's a, a, a historical and a, a, um, a theological claim that uh, Jesus is making that harkens back to the Old Testament that uh, wasn't expected by the, uh, the religious leaders at the time. Uh, they, they, wanted, they wanted the conquering king. They didn't want the suffering servant. Uh, and so, unfortunately, they, they get both. So right. uh, that's, that's the best explanation for, for Jesus' resurrection. And then because that's the best explanation, Jesus did rise from the dead, most likely than not that he, he is God. And so their concluding and summary then is uh, from the historical evidence for the resurrection, evidentialists infer that God really did rise, uh, raise Jesus from the dead. And, you know, as you mentioned, from this point, the whole of the Christian faith may potentially be defended. For Jesus was raised from the dead, given the religious content of the uh, event, then God evidently does exist. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then the true God is the God of Jesus Christ. He is the God of the Jewish people who inspired the Old Testament, who sent Jesus, his son, into the world for our salvation, and who commissioned the apostles and their associates to establish the Christian church and to produce the New Testament. And so this is a, a big point for evidentialists with regard to their uh, defense of Christianity. Right. Well, and that does it for uh, chapter 10, uh, kind of giving the, the the main argument points for the uh, evidentialist approach. Uh, next time when we cover chapter 11, uh, it goes into kind of the the, um, the six um, main uh, apologetic questions that uh, every apologist has to answer. So we'll see uh, what, what the, uh, remind us what those questions are and see where the evidentialists uh, tend to focus their answer on. And, uh, and I think it also gives us then a brief critique of evidentialism as well yeah. near the end of that chapter. So, yeah. It'll be fun. How are we going to argue with the evidence? It doesn't seem, <laughs> right. doesn't seem sound of us to do so. But That's right. We'll, we'll let the authors do the walking uh, and we'll do the talking. So, uh, uh, as always, uh, we thank you for um, checking out any of the books that we talk about. Uh, we're here to kind of um, uh, take the book off the shelf and present them to you, uh, make our, our fun comments along the way, and then um, uh, kind of encourage you to uh, open up uh, these books that have presented to us uh, to us by the church, uh, by people in the church, uh, by 
um, um, studying God's word and then uh, ultimately giving him glory uh, through, through this. So uh, we thank you for joining us. And if you want to read more of the books that we covered, cavelacross.com, go to kind of the middle of the page. All the books that we covered are there. Then you can check out all the book reviews and blog posts and uh, guest appearances that we've been on uh, for, for other shows and check those out. Uh, and always uh, we'll say uh, uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.